Welcome to The Hold Room with ACC, a quick update on all things relating to airport development as well as the Airport Consultants Council. This episode is part of a new passenger experience series hosted by ACC's Terminal and Facilities Committee. In this series, we are collecting the experiences and perspectives of different types of users of the airport passenger terminal including business travelers, leisure travelers, airport executives, airport, airline, TSA, and concession staff, and airport consultant staff, to name a few. For more information on this series and the hosts, go back and give the first episode a listen to. In the last two years, we've seen several new airlines begin service in the U.S., including Avello Airlines, Breeze Airways, and AHA. But what are the market forces driving this increase in new entrants? How will these new leisure-focused carriers affect airport facilities and the passenger experience? In this episode of The Hold Room, Josh Lemichaud with RSNH chats with Laura and Max about the changing domestic airline landscape and ways to improve the passenger experience. Hi, Josh. Welcome to The Hold Room. Glad we could have you on today. All right. Thank you for having me. Could you tell us a bit about yourself and your background and what you do on a day-to-day basis? Absolutely. So I am an aviation consultant. I've been in the industry for 15 years. I worked at URS right out of college as a airport architect intern. Spent a couple years outside of aviation, I guess, uh, just working on non-airport related projects. And then I got involved in Southwest Airlines. I spent five years at Southwest Airlines in customer service, operations, and in-flight. After that, I went to work at AECOM doing airport terminal design in Boston. Then I moved out to Chicago for family and continued working at AECOM at the O'Hare Modernization Project. For those that are unfamiliar, is all of the runway expansion and reorganization that's pretty much wrapped up now. So I did some time there, and then I worked at Recondo for over two years. And now I'm at RSNH. My primary responsibilities is airport terminal planning. I've been lead planner on several projects. I've been support planning with the buildings group on a number of other projects. And I'm also an airline industry sort of market intelligence analyst, a lot of data crunching with DOT stats and how on-time performance trends are looking. And that's been very important over the past year and a half as we've been doing a lot of tracking of how the airports have been recovering. As employment data comes out, I've been tracking national averages along with pretty much all the airports that we have as clients. So that brings me to today. So from your background, looking at terminal planning design, having seen what's been going on for the past two years now, how has terminal planning changed as part of this? What do you think has influenced things as they've continued to progress throughout this time? And have you seen any changes at airports that you're excited about? That's a great question. So as the pandemic was unfolding, the big topic that was always coming around was how do you implement social distancing into an airport environment? And it was a very complicated topic at the time because no one was traveling. We were down to 10% year over year 
in most cases. So whoever's in the airports now are social distancing anyway. But how would you eventually, when traveling comes back, approach the issue? One of the shocking things that we found was that the space required per passenger, based on a six-foot box bubble, required an almost three to five times increase in every space. Now, normally, when you design a project, you create a program, the architects create layouts, and then it goes through the financial element of the cost estimating and how things get value engineered. But if you're going to expand your program three to five times, the cost for that is just almost incomprehensible. So then as time went on and the whole realization of three to five times the space just for queuing or even the hold rooms, I mean, you know, the hold rooms are the big thing. But all right, how do we look at cleanliness? How do we work on heating and ventilation and air conditioning? And what are other ways to give the passengers confidence in a clean environment without expanding a terminal three to five times the size it needed to be? At the time, there were very few people traveling. So you could put the stickers down on the floor. You had your six feet of space and it was okay. But as time goes on, you weren't going to have that luxury anymore. And not every airport in the country was going to go through a massive expansion project in order to allow for social distancing. So we started looking at how to create flows and what the future would be like for airflow and restroom sizing and areas that are more confined. You start to look at the risk, where higher risk areas are, and then go from there. Now with vaccinations and the trends we're seeing now, it's also about social distancing now. Airport planning has really gotten back to the formulas and typical planning trends and methods. And now you're starting to see more innovation, more contactless interaction, which you started to see in airports well before the pandemic, like Terminal 5 at JFK. You have the big scrolling marquee in the middle when you come out of security you go down to the gates and you have tables with iPads where you can order. Now people see that as a way to order and not stand in a line at a concession where you're three inches from the person in front or behind you. It's especially interesting where we're seeing staffing issues with concessions and that this kind of mobile ordering and other methods are short-term helping as traffic starts to really get back to 2019 levels. I think there's a long way to go, but what's been done so far for innovation, I think is a step in the right direction, let alone for COVID. It's just exciting to see what the future of the airport terminal is gonna look like. So given what you just described, what are the areas that we still need improvement in? Well, right now with staffing levels, the passenger experience is just terrible. Lines are long, TSA is understaffed, concessionaires are understaffed, airplanes are packed. It's not a good environment for passengers to be in. And you're hearing all sorts of stories now of all sorts of chaos erupting in the terminals. People are kind of reaching their limits with all the stresses of what's going on today, all just culminating. And then you get to the airport, you're waiting an hour to get through security. There's no one manning the concession stand. 
and then your flight's two hours late. It's a recipe for disaster. And as a byproduct of what people are experiencing, people are driving more because they want to avoid the hubs. So in some instances, you're finding airlines that want to do more point to point, like Velo and Breeze, but people are also opting to drive. So when you compound in delays and everything, like what we've experienced all summer, I just might as well get in the car. A five-hour car ride, six-hour car ride, you know, now is under more heavy consideration. And that's a big problem. A lot of small town airports that relied on those hub connections are seeing traffic not rebound as quickly because people are opting to just drive. So what would be good for the passenger experience is building an environment that is more welcoming. And I know that's such a generic term to say, and you can answer this question for hours, but you know, what does that mean? And that means that you can walk down a concourse and not have people piling out from the hold rooms waiting to board. It means having quiet spaces. You know, people look for certain things when they're terminal. They want a place to relax. They want a place to grab a bite to eat. They want a place to put their bag down for a few minutes. And I think what you've seen is a lot of people gravitate towards airline lounges because you can get that. You can go in a quiet space. You can have a place to make a phone call. You can have a place to just unwind where you're not in a cramped hold room. You're not in a cramped food court. Yeah. And actually, that's interesting. When you were speaking, I was envisioning a terminal of serenity, of just like peacefulness. And I know that's really hard to come by these days with everything that you said, understaffing, long lines, people are already at a heightened level of anxiety. And so that can escalate very quickly. And trying to create environments that are, like you said, quiet. What can we do to make things quieter? Can we put in carpeting? Can we put in the eggshell walls and kind of hide them between things just to reduce the noise level? I know we've heard at other airports sometimes artwork and plants and indoor green areas to create that peace within people or help reduce some of those levels. Everything that you've been saying is what I think people look forward to for travel rather than what they're experiencing in certain areas. An example comes to mind. At Logan Airport in Boston, they would just have these rocking chairs scattered throughout the terminals everywhere. And they were by windows, they were in public quarters, they were on the secure side. At a point, they got a bunch of, I think, local schools to come and do artwork on them. So they were baseball-themed chairs, football-themed chairs, history-themed. And as simple as it sounds, it's kind of nice to just walk down a corridor. You can sit in a rocking chair and just relax. I mentioned T5 at JFK. At the very end of the main concourse, there's a glass window wall that sort of faced the intersection of one, three left and the fours. There they put a bunch of beanbag chairs and a bunch of cool lounge seating. And it's not really in the boarding area of the gate, but it's just a great place to go and chill. Watch planes, relax, lounge out. Not everyone's on top of each other. Even in cramped hubs like O'Hare, they have the connector between Terminal 1 and Terminal 2. It has some cool lights, some cool stuff hanging down, and it has some chairs, some seating. But then when you go back into Terminal 1, it's the hustle and bustle of Terminal 1. And then you go into Terminal 2, it's the hustle and bustle of Terminal 2. So you find these little nooks and crannies around where you can really accomplish something cool with something almost very simple. So even in existing buildings, there are little things you can do that can go a long way. 
So I wanted to go back to something that you said about the changing airline system and an opportunity for airlines like Breeze and Avello doing more of a point-to-point. Do you think that will change the passenger experience, given that now you don't have to take two or three flights to get somewhere, you might be able to go straight shot? Do you think that changes how people view travel and people experience travel? I do. I think if your markets are served, I think it definitely helps. The general public has sort of accepted the hub and spoke system, and it's just a necessary evil. I live in a small town. I'm going to have to go through a hub, and that's just how it's going to be. But now, with COVID anxiety and everything kind of reaching a boiling point, these opportunities are coming along. And it's not everywhere. I mean, you know, Breeze's network is tiny. Avello's network is tiny. And even the new airline, AHA, also known as ExpressJet, their network is tiny as well. What has also made the point-to-point very popular is that the leisure has sort of been the number one driver of demand. After everything tanked in April 2020, Allegiant was racing back with a vengeance in their traffic. And it was all leisure, people wanting to get out of the house and go to a leisure destination. But they've always excelled in the point-to-point. They don't send people through hubs. They do O&D. And that's what Breeze sort of took the model. Aha's taking the model. And Avello's taking the model. And people seem to like that. The airline industry, it's a very complicated thing. So if you have loyalty, you know, you're going to go through the hub, get your miles. And if the fare is right, people like to choose with their wallets oftentimes. So while someone in the New York, Connecticut area, it may be direct to go from New Haven down to Florida on a velo. What's to stop JetBlue or anybody else offering a similar service out of LaGuardia or even White Plains for less? And is that enough to attract somebody? It's going to be very interesting to see how that plays out. I'm excited to see it. You know, competition's great. So bring it on. I say, let's go grab the popcorn and let's see. It's kind of interesting. People talk a lot about how the pandemic kind of accelerated trends that were already underway self-service check-in and ordering concessions through an app or a tablet instead of face-to-face. It seems like the point-to-point market is actually something similar to that because, you know, Breeze and Avello had planned to launch before the pandemic even happened. And then the pandemic hit and suddenly people were shifting to a lot more leisure travel. And so that kind of worked really rather fortuitously for these new entrants into the market. Yeah, absolutely. What was good for Avello and Breeze was that, as you mentioned, they were planning well before the pandemic happened in that their business model was more based toward leisure-based travel. Well before the pandemic, you saw incredible growth from Spirit, Frontier, and Allegiant, where they were entering into markets that they never used to serve because they found markets available. They were low-ticket prices, And they acquired larger and larger airplanes to keep their costs low. And what you saw were the legacy carriers start to respond by offering your basic economy fares. So you were starting to see a shift to kind of match the ultra low cost model without becoming ultra low cost. So you had to pay for your bags. On some of the carriers, you couldn't select your seat until you checked in and you were only allowed a backpack to carry on. So some of the rules that the ultra low cost carriers sort of play by and where they get their ancillary revenue from 
were starting to be adopted in other areas as well. It was very interesting to see how quickly the leisure market took off after the pandemic started. As a result from that, you look at all the markets that were created. You know, you look at airports like Glacier Park and Bozeman, even airports like Redmond and Missoula, all these airports that are up in Montana and Idaho and Oregon and Washington State. They start getting very, very popular to the point that airport projects that were done years ago to accommodate their growth, all of a sudden, all their numbers were busted because they were getting passenger loads that they were nowhere prepared for. Targets that were set for the mid-2030s are going to be met in the late 2020s now, if things continue. You know, it's hard to say whether a lot of these markets will be sustained once international travel returns. I don't know. It's hard to say, but it's been amazing what markets have been open due to the leisure market. Yeah, that is something that is an interesting characteristic about ultra low cost carriers. They have a tendency to enter and exit markets pretty quickly and freely in a way that can have its positive and its negatives. It makes all these new markets accessible to people, especially with the lower fares. But at the same time, you may have a degree of disinvestment with the airports themselves. Is the airline going to commit to this facility? Are they going to put up any money to help fund this terminal that they're going to need to accommodate their demand? That's hard to think that long into the future when you have a business model that operates that way. Absolutely. With many low-cost carriers, they try to use common-use facilities and they'll use boarding ramps instead of bridges. So their level of investment in the airport is low. And that's just part of their business model. So what you've seen and you will continue to see is that if a market doesn't work, they'll pull right out. It's just common business sense for them. There's no benefit staying in a market if it's not making money for you. And especially when you're really trying to keep costs low, you don't want to be in there any longer than you absolutely need to be. So many of the listeners of this podcast are airport planning and design professionals. And as we were talking about ultra low cost carriers and that they enter and exit markets very quickly, how do we design our facilities in ways that are best suited to serve those ultra low cost carriers that both make travel more accessible, but also have essentially a high risk of over investment in facilities? That is a really great question. It's really tough to say when you are planning a new facility, because those take years to plan design, and airlines aren't typically going to commit that far out in advance. But it's also not a case of if you build it, they will come, because you have no idea. What it seems is that the airports that ultra-low-cost carriers are trialing, a market where they think is going to be new and they're going to try to build up, has an existing facility. What you've seen in airports that they end up becoming popular with is that they will eventually build a facility to cater to it. But I don't think an airport is going to take on the risk of going through the process of building a new terminal if ultra-low-cost carriers are just going to be trialing it out. I'm not saying this is the answer, but there are examples out there of temporary structures being built to handle increase in demand on sort of a short-term basis. Durango in Colorado is an example where they have a tent. It's a fixed tent, you know, pretty big with HVAC and uh, concessions in it that serves some of their flights. Sonoma County STS Airport, the Snoopy Airport, Charles Schultz, they're expanding their terminal because over the years it's gotten so popular that they've built 
a standalone tent with security, with restrooms and everything in order to have the ability to expand a terminal building. It's a relatively low risk investment for something that you're trying it out. So at existing airports, my guess is if you cannot use the existing facility that they currently have, then you can add on a low risk structure, whatever that may be, and then work from there. That's very interesting that you should say that because I feel like that is what's happening with Avello at Tweed New Haven, trying to figure out what the balance is between the existing facility modifications that can be made and what the potential future needs are, you know, the balance of the risk. And I like the way that you phrase the ultra-low-cost care trials, because in some cases they really do blossom, and in some cases it's a very temporary thing, and you won't know until you're in it. New Haven's interesting because the airport is small, and Avello started with 737-800s, and they acquired the 700 because it can perform better out of that airport. What's interesting is that American Eagle has dropped New Haven. So I think Avello is the sole operator at New Haven, which is a great opportunity for them. If it ends up being successful, then they can invest in the facility that suits their needs. So The airport presents challenges operationally, but these airlines know what they're doing. So, you know, we'll see. We'll see how New Haven turns out for them. I'm glad you mentioned Santa Rosa as well. I actually flew on Avello's first flight out of there, and that was my first time at that airport. And it was such a bizarre experience to go into the terminal building and then exit the building and then go through another building and then exit that building and then go into the sprung structure where they have the security screening checkpoint and the hold rooms. But yeah, you can add these temporary facilities that may work for the trial periods. And then ultimately, if they do stick around, then we can make some later decisions about, do we want to invest in a more permanent facility? So another point is that if an ultra low cost carrier comes in and is successful in the market, it may attract other players. Then it's the game of competition. They went over the other passengers, that the other carrier may go out, but there's interest And is there a real business case to build a terminal anyway? We see that there is potential, so we're going to do it. So from your experience in the airline industry and customer service, in-flight experience, all of that, are there any particular passenger concerns that stand out to you that you think design professionals would benefit from understanding better? Personal space. And it's getting worse the more dense the aircraft layouts become. As airplanes get bigger, they jam more seats in. We now have A321s that are capable of seating 230 people. It's a big plane, but it's a a narrow body. It's a tight space, and it works for some airlines. But one of the many things that is really irritating people is the lack of space. And I think it's always been an issue. COVID really made it an issue, but people want space. And you see that in the airport with contactless ordering and other areas for people to retreat to. It's not good. When you're walking through the airport, it's after a thunderstorm or it's during a snowstorm, flights are piling up, and it seems like people are hanging out of the rafters. They're just everywhere. Nobody has personal space. People are sitting up against the moving walkways. Everyone's in search of a power outlet. So personal space is really something that should be focused on. I'm not saying you need 36 square feet or 50 square feet or 100 square feet, but just providing opportunities for exploration 
away from a cramped hold room or a busy concession hall would go a long way. That's where the clever planning and design comes in, is that while cost of a project is very important, trying to factor in elements like this that are passenger friendly will be helpful. If it's at a hub airport, people may choose to connect through that airport because it's a nicer airport to connect to. And I have two hours between flights. Okay, like I don't mind doing that here. But other airports, people may avoid just because it's too tight. It's cramped. I don't like being there for any length of time. But it also goes towards the hub and spoke airports. You know, how do you prevent your passenger from driving to the hub? Is that making your terminal a more adventurous environment, whatever that means. So many possibilities. Josh, thank you so much for joining us in, in the whole room and the conversation today. This has been an incredible conversation and we're very excited that you were here for us to answer all of our questions. Thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for joining us in The Hold Room for this special podcast series exploring the new passenger experience. You can find more from this series on the ACC Training Hub. That's training.acconline.org backslash the-hold-room or wherever you get your podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, etc. Follow us for more content from the Airport Consultants Council. You can support this podcast by leaving a rating or review and by telling your friends and colleagues about the podcast. Thanks again. Thanks again.